All right. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you to our service. If you have a Bible today, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We have plenty of extras. Our men will come and just raise your hand. We'll be glad to pass you one. You're welcome to keep it if you don't have a Bible. I want to invite you to take a moment to pray with me. A few years ago, I taught a Bible study for about a year at someone's home in our church here, and there was a young man by the name of Bill that was attending regularly, but he struggled with substance abuse and um, wasn't sure if Bill ever accepted the Lord and hadn't seen him for a while. About three months ago, he was here in our service and um, came up and we spoke for a while. Got a call yesterday evening that they found Bill in Trenton. He had OD'd and um, was being kept alive on life support, and they we're going to pull the plug today. So my son Jordan and I went over last night and laid hands on him and prayed over him. And um, they've delayed the pulling of the plug, but it's hard to say whether um, that will happen soon. So I want you to pray because that happened very similar to, to a young man in our church. Many of you know the story of Micah Van Horn. And they said he was brain dead. There was no hope. And the Lord was very powerful and merciful. And Micah's now able to talk. He's walking a little bit. He still has a long way to go. So God can do anything. And I know many of you have other burdens of people with cancer in your family, addictions and struggles and pains and financial things, all kinds of depression. So let's take a, just a moment to silently pray for marriages, but whatever God puts on your heart, but especially if we'll pray together in the name of Jesus for Bill. I was able to talk to him about the gospel, how much people can hear when they're on life support, only the Lord knows. So let's pray silently. Father, thank you that you are not a God who's far off. The Bible says you're a very present help in trouble. And so many times we ignore you, and Lord, then all of a sudden we come running to you when we need you. Please forgive us for that. Lord, help us to walk with you by faith and talk to you day by day in good times and in bad. But thank you, Lord, that you are the God of all comfort, and when we cry out to you, amazing things can happen. And so as the body of Christ, we cry out to you for Bill as his life hangs in the brink. We don't know if he's a believer. Pray that he has trusted Christ, but if he hasn't, that you'll keep him alive and allow him an opportunity to hear the gospel. Thank you for the great work you've done in Micah to demonstrate your power. We know a number in our church who have cancer, Lord, and things look bleak. But God, nothing's impossible, and we just join together in Jesus' name, praying for you to pour out your miracles on the body of Christ to show the world that Jesus lives and reigns. Give grace to those who are suffering today. And as we study your word, I pray that the spirit of God will really help us to understand exactly what you expect from us and the love that you have for us. And may we grow today because your word is, is, is opened and explained through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This morning we're going to look at what happens when people go over to the dark side. We're studying the book of Genesis, the faith of our fathers, and last week we saw this great original sin of Adam and Eve when they decided to disobey God and partake of the tree that God had forbade them to eat. This morning we're going to look at the response of God to that. A lot of people have a misunderstanding of God. They see him as one-sided, and that is the only thing they want to focus on is love. So we'll hear things like this. My God is a God of love. My God would never put anyone in hell. My God is just a big bundle of love. The problem with that is, is that it's not our responsibility to form God in our own minds. Say, this is what my God is like. It's what does the Bible say about God? And he is full of love. The Bible says God is love. But the Bible says that he's also holy. And his holiness demands punishment for rebellion and sin. So there's an interesting verse in, in Romans chapter 11 that kind of gives us this balance that says, don't just think about God's love. Paul says in Romans 11, behold then the kindness and the severity of God. And you're like, well, I like to think of God as kind. And Paul says, yeah, we also need to think of him as severe. And so as we look at this passage and we see that God's going to confront Adam and Eve in their sin, we're going to see both the kindness and the severity of God. And much of what we're going to receive from him depends on our response. And so if you're taking notes this morning, there's really just three things that we're going to see in broad strokes here. Number one, we're going to see the confrontation of sin by the Lord. He's going to go seeking Adam and Eve out. He's going to confront them about their sin. And then once he confronts them, the next thing he'll do is he's going to explain the consequences of sin. Okay, because you have done this, these are the consequences. But this, this chapter ends with a very encouraging passage where we see the compassion and grace of God. So a confrontation, the consequences, and then the compassion of God towards sin. So we'll start in verses 8 through 13, and we're going to look at, or I'm sorry, 7 through 13, where we'll see the confrontation of sin. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? He said, and you can just picture him walking out from behind the tree. Oh, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, first of all, the fact that God seeks them out and asks them questions is really something we, we need to pause and reflect on. God knew where they were. It wasn't like he was playing Marco Polo. Where are you? I give up. He knew where they were, and he knew what they did. But I want you to think about the methodology that he used here. Why was it that he sought him out in question form. Where are you? What did you do? Did you eat? 
I think what we learn from this is that when it comes to, to sin, when it comes to disobedience, that it's God's desire for us to come clean and to be honest. When David confessed his sins in Psalm 51, he asked God to for, forgive him, but then he said this, Lord, you desire truth in our inner man. And it's not hard to relate to. Remember as a child when your mom found you, she had put those dozen cookies out on the counter and she said, don't eat of a cookie. And, and when she came into the kitchen, half the cookie was still in your mouth. Your cheek was loaded. The crumbs are falling down your cheek. She counts 11 cookies. She knows beyond any shadow of a doubt you ate the cookie, but she doesn't say, all right, let's get this over with. Come over here. Instead, she asks, did you eat the cookie? Now, at the time, you weren't, you weren't savvy enough to go, of course I ate the cookie. You see it. You know I ate the cookie. But mother had something in mind. She wanted to draw out from you an honest confession. She wanted to see how you would respond. And that's how God works in our lives. He wants us to come honestly to him. But what I want you to think about is this whole introduction of the knowledge of evil. See, they already knew good because God had made everything good. But he said to them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because he recognized that to know evil is not just to know about it, but it would be to experience it. And with the experience of evil always comes guilt and shame. See, prior to this, they didn't have any guilt or any shame. There was nothing to be guilty, nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be ashamed of. But now they knew evil in an experiential way. And so they feel this shame, and as is our natural tendency, we blame others, right? Well, it, it, yeah, I'm sorry, but, and they hide. So I want you to think, first of all, of how sin alienates. It alienates, it estranges, it separates. Sin looks so promising. If I do this, that'll feel good, that'll look good, that'll help me. But notice that it alienates both horizontally and vertically. First of all, the first consequence of this guilt of shame, of doing what's wrong, is there was an alienation between them. See, when they covered themselves with loincloths, it wasn't to hide from God. This was to hide from one another. And this explains why, even today, as we try to interact in marriage and in relationships, there's this, there's this alienation, there's this fear of being transparent with people because there's shame, there's fear. We don't, we don't think if people knew what we were really like that they would that they would accept us. And so sin alienates us from others, but it also alienates us from God because notice, they not only covered themselves from one another, but then they both hid from God. So knowing that, it kind of sets a framework for me. So, so what do I do when I sin? How do I feel when I sin? What is my response? Well, it's interesting because we all can have a tendency to even sometimes blame God that's what Adam did, but it's not like we've never done that. James chapter 1, 13 says this. Let none of us say when we're tempted, I'm being tempted by God, because God can't be tempted by evil, and he himself never tempts any of us. But each one of us is tempted when we're drawn away by our own desires. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin leads to death. So, by nature, God is always pursuing sinners. He's always pursuing people. He's always exposing our shame and our guilt, but always with the desire to express grace as we 
honestly admit our failures. So there's the confrontation. But now let's look at the consequences. God's going to start with the serpent. So beginning in verse 14 through verse 19, we'll see some of the consequences. This is a really powerful passage. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now what I want you to see here is two things. Number one, that the serpent is a real animal, and that somehow Satan was able to embody and indwell this serpent in such a way that the ultimate blame lie behind the serpent with Satan, and we'll talk about that, but even the serpent itself. I'd like to suggest that snakes were not originally meant to be on their belly, right? God doesn't say to the serpent, you're going to stay on your belly. He says, now you're going to go on your belly and you're going to lick the dust. So as, as a consequence of allowing himself to be Satan's helper, the serpent himself experienced consequences. But we know that behind this is really Satan. And we learn this from the New Testament where Satan is referred to in Revelation chapter 20. The apostle John says, one day an angel will lay hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil. So ultimately what what we want to see here is this is God speaking to Satan. And he says to Satan, because you have done this. Now don't miss this. He says, cursed are you. Okay, God's never going to say that to, to mankind. He doesn't say to Adam, cursed are you too, Adam. God curses the ground, and he curses Satan, but he never curses man. And there's, there's a mysterious demonstration of his undeserved grace because for reasons known only to God, the book of Hebrews says, he offers no help to angels, but he offers help to the seed of Abraham. So, so this curse was permanent. It was an eternal pronouncement of banishment with unrelenting torment. And one day Satan will experience the fullness of this curse. But I want you to notice in verse 15 that as he continues to explain this curse, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, first of all, the word enmity means hostility. There's going to be relationship strained. Okay, there's going to be anger and and fighting But notice what he says, between your seed and her seed. Now, the Hebrew word seed here is much like the English word seed in that seed can have a collective sense or a singular sense. Like if I brought my son up here, people say, oh, he looks like you. I say, yeah, he's my seed, right? So sometimes when you speak of the seed of Abraham, it could be talking about Christ himself. But oftentimes, seed is used in a collective sense. It's for all of your posterity, It's your family reunion. These are all my seed, okay? So in this passage in verse 15, God's going to use this word seed in a singular and plural sense. The first part is the singular sense. He says, I will put enmity, Satan. I will put alienation and conflict between your seed and her seed, okay? Well, who is that going to be? It's not Satan's seed is not going to be all of the fallen angels. So when we say they're the spawn of Satan, The the fallen angels are not his seed, but rather it's going to become everybody who isn't a follower of the living God. In fact, Jesus confirmed this in John chapter 8. Jesus says, you guys want to kill me. And they said, I don't want to kill you. You have a demon. 
we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus said, look, if Abraham was your father, you wouldn't want to kill me. But then he said this, listen to John 8, 44. He's talking to these unbelievers. He goes, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus said, Satan doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies. So so we see this theme in scripture that God's people will always experience hostility and persecution and hatred and dislike from unbelievers. So when God introduces this collective idea, he's telling us right from the beginning, if you choose to follow God, you need to count the cost and recognize that you may be rejected, disliked, and persecuted by those who don't. In fact, in case we don't get it, chapter 4 says, you want to see an example of enmity between your seed and her seed? Cain, the Bible says, was of the devil, and he slew his brother because his brother's deeds were righteous. And so I have to, even as I'm reading this, force myself to ask, whose side am I really on? Am I a believer Am I going to choose to be one of the minority who follows Christ, who believes in the Lord, and then decides to do what's right? Because when you make that decision, the Bible says, do not be amazed if the world hates you. The Bible says all who desire to follow Christ will be persecuted. And so it shouldn't surprise us that right now, every day, every hour, people are dying. Uh, Pastor John shared with me that. John, what was the number of how many people die per hour? An hour? 20 people an hour on this planet are murdered, are martyred for Christ. Before this sermon's over then, I stole John's illustration, but he's going to use it in his preaching. Um, 20 people will die at the hands of Satan's seed. And so we have to recognize that, that we're going to be hated by the world but then God adds something really profound not just corporate hostility between followers of God and Satan's followers but then he 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 turns to the singular he says in verse 15 he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel so this we have then the first prediction that there's going to be a hero a champion there's going to be someone who's going to come and he's going to put an end to sin he's going to annihilate Satan the same word that's used, bruise, has a strong connotation. So, so in essence, some Bibles say, he will bruise you, but you shall crush him. So, so what we have here is a prediction of Christ coming and Satan allowing him and, and, and crucifying him and, and him pouring out his life and Satan bruising him on the heel. But as a result of that, Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, then comes out of the grave and he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. He has overcome Satan. He has overcome sin. And so we read in Romans 16, 20, one day the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. So this is sometimes called the proto-evangelum. You want to just underline this. This is the first prophecy in the Bible about the coming of Jesus. And if you're new to reading the Bible, you need to understand that the story of the Bible is that The fall of Adam and original sin is why everyone's doomed for hell. But God from the beginning wove this thread of promises that one day he would send the seed of the woman 
that would be the Messiah, the son of David, that would be crucified to pay the debt for our sins. And it's a wonderful study to see the predictions of the coming of Christ. So within this dark, bleak passage of the severity of God towards sin, we see a ray of light and hope and kindness. But then God turns to the woman, and we have a really interesting explanation here of the consequences of sin to woman. He says to the woman, verse 16, I will greatly multiply your pain. Now, literally, it's and your conception or in your childbirth, your pain shall, in pain you shall bring forth children. Now, I don't know why, right? Ladies are like, that just doesn't seem fair. And, you know, guys, we can't come alongside and say, honey, man, I know what you're going through because we don't, okay? And by the way, ladies, this does not mean if you get an epidural or a painkiller that, that you're hiding from your consequences, you know? God's not saying, you got to take it on the chin just like I announced it. But for reasons known only to God, part of Eve's consequences were great pain and childbearing. But the second phrase is really the one that I want to just focus on for a few moments. He says, yet, or it might be translated better, but your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now let me remind you of the first thing, and that is this. This is not a blessing. This is not kudos. This is not good job, Eve. Let me tell you your bonus. This is a curse. And he says, your desire shall be for your husband. Now, a lot of people, when they first read that, they go, oh, that's kind of cool. That means when my husband comes home from work, here comes Bubba. I'll run to the door. Oh, Bubba, my desire is for you. I'm so glad God gave me warm fuzzies to want to just love you. This is a curse, okay? And so it's a very difficult phrase, but interestingly, God gives us a clue as to what he means by your desire shall be for your husband. Now, actually, someone told me this morning after service, a couple that's been married a long, long time, she says, I do that. She says, I I run out to the car and I meet my husband. I go, hallelujah, bless your heart. That's great. But it's not the norm. Let's just say that. But, But here's the interesting thing. Look over in chapter 4, verse 7, because we're going to see the same phrase, your desire shall be, okay? In chapter 4, Cain and Abel offer their sacrifice to God, and, and God says to Cain, why are you angry? You didn't do what's right. You didn't, you didn't offer the sacrifice the way I had told you. You knew what's right. But then he said in verse 7, if you do well, in other words, if you do what's right, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now understand that he's personifying sin. He's not saying there's a little lion named sin there, but he's saying, now this is how sin works. Sin rules, sin dominates, sin controls. Jesus says when you commit sin, you become a slave of it. So he says, sin is crouching at your door. Now notice what he's saying to to Cain. He's going, Cain, you're you're in a dangerous place right now. And then he says this about sin. Sin's desire is for you. Same phrase. Its desire is for you. Now, what does that mean in that context? Its desire is to dominate. Its desire is to have some sense of control over you. But God says to Cain, but don't let it dominate you. You must master it. So the phrase, its desire for be, shall be, in my judgment, doesn't mean, ooh, I'm so glad my husband's home but rather there will be a tendency towards relational conflict because you will not want your husband at times 
to be, to be in a position of leadership over you. Because go back to verse 16. This is the consequences. He says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So something just happened as a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. There was a certain leadership equality that had changed, okay? Now, ladies, in no way is God saying here, this is because men are better, this is because men are smarter, this is because men are more innocent, okay? But nevertheless, this passage becomes a template as to why later the scriptures are going to tell wives, submit to your husbands. And Paul refers to this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, in the local church, I do not permit women to teach or exercise authority over men. Now, a lot of people bristle at that. They go, that's just wrong. Paul's a chauvinist. That's ridiculous. We're in an egalitarian society. Everybody's equal. And I'm going, whoa, don't shoot the messenger. If all scripture is inspired by God, and God says, in the local church, women are not to be in authority over men. He's, number one, not saying because men are better. Okay? So, for example, when Jesus Christ submitted to the Father, he was equal to God. Right? But people look at that passage in 1 Timothy 2, and they go, well, that was just for back in that culture. Today, everybody's equal. And I go, no, you got to read the passage. He says, I do not permit a woman to have authority over men or to teach men in the local church. And then he says, and here's why. For it was not Eve who was first created, but Adam. And then he says this, and Eve, because she was deceived, fell into transgression. So, for that reason, as a part of the consequences of Eve's sin, there's a difference in how she shall relate to her husband and in the local church, uh, the role of women. Now, let me say a couple of things. Somehow Eve forfeited some of her leadership privilege, but she's no less of a fellow heir of the grace of life. And if you continue to read 1 Timothy 2, he holds out a hope of childbearing, and that, that's an interesting verse. I, I don't want to get into that at this point. But, but here's the thing I want you to think about. So right from the beginning, we need to recognize marriage is good, right? Marriage is a blessing. But God has already told us right from the beginning, there's going to be some relational strain here, okay? And that's why I'm going to, I'm going to say this again. We should be having hundreds of people storming Pastor John's book cart going, did you get that book yet called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller? Now, I... We don't have it yet, yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I already took a beating. I already took a beating. And I said, well, I think I might have talked to Pastor John. I don't remember, but I think I might have told him. But let's just say this. We don't have it yet. But you can order it online if you don't want to wait. But we'll have some, Lord willing, soon. That was clever. Soon. Never promise. Soon. So, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. It's a fantastic book on marriage. And by the way, ladies, for those of you that are struggling, I don't know about this. I want you to get it, if for no other reason, his wife, who's very gifted, very, very competent, she writes the chapter, and she's not just a little demure, yes, my dear, yes, my dear, it's very good, okay? But one of the premises of the book is that marriage is hard. It's supposed to be based on friendship, but it's going to be hard, but it's got such godly, sound, biblical advice that will give you encouragement. It's not three easy steps to live happily ever after. So... 
But we see here that part of the curse would be this relational role play that's going to be different. It's not going to be easy. Okay? And then, finally, God turns to Adam. And he says in verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and, and not eaten, and eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Now, by the way, let me just remind you, Adam's sin was worse. 1 Timothy 2 says Eve was deceived. But the Bible says Adam was not deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. And in rebellion against God, he chose to disobey God. And so the consequences of death that come here, Romans 5.12 says this, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. So, so let's, not, let's not think God's throwing ladies under the bus. Adam's sin was the worst because it was deliberate and not deceived. So he says, number one, here's the first part of your curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now think about that. God pronounced a curse on creation. Prior to that, the ground was that good, rich Lancaster soil. They didn't even have to put manure in it. It just, it just, stuff would just grow up, beautiful fruit, you know? You didn't have to do any work. You just came along maybe, before that, Adam had light trimming and cultivating, but there was fruit everywhere. The ground was just abundant. But now God puts a curse on all of creation, Right? And we, and we look around, we see famine, we see all kinds of things that are corrupting and, and, and defiling the earth. And so God says, in toil, you're going to eat from the ground all the days of your life. It wasn't like he could just go reach for fruit anymore. So the moment he's banished from the garden, what are we going to eat now? It wasn't like he had a refrigerator. God's like, get to work. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. You go and till the ground. By the way, it's not going to come popping out of the ground while you just sit around. In fact, look at verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So in other words, even as you're trying to eke out a living and get your food out of there, you're going to get poked by stickers. You're going to have to separate it from thistles and unedible stuff. It's not going to be easy. Life is not going to be fun. Life is not going to be a kuna matata where you just sail down the river and you eat pineapples and so forth. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground because from it you were taken for your dust and to dust you shall return. So the very place of his happiness has now been cut off and Bruce Walkie said this, God cut off his happiness in this life that he might begin to sense that happiness is going to have to come in the life to come. And God created the ground to submit to man. It was to rule, or man was to rule over the ground and enjoy the fruit of it. Now, the very ground that was supposed to submit to him is going to swallow him and is going to struggle against him. And this explains why work is hard and frustrating and we have to get up in the morning when the alarm goes off. And somehow this idea that life is supposed to be fun, God doesn't say when you become a Christian, I take away the thorns and the thistles and you're going to have a job you love and you're going to get up every day eager to go to work. No, that's, that, that's almost the opposite of what he says. Instead, he says to, to the believer, he says, now I want you to shine as lights in a dark world. So do everything without grumbling or complaining so that you may prove yourself to be innocent children of God. Prove yourself to be a seed 
of Abraham, a seed of Adam and Eve, a follower of Christ. So when you're at work and everybody's like, I hate my job, or I hate school, or I hate work, well, that, that's how the world looks at it. But God's saying, listen, you might not like your job, but I want you to learn how to work without grumbling or complaining. I'm renewing you into the image of Christ so that you can demonstrate that even though we live in a cursed world, that because of Christ, we have hope and we can give thanks for everything and we can live differently from the world. And we have to wait till the Lord Jesus comes to give us that final victory when we finally enter our rest. And here we are reminded that the consequences of sin are are so disastrous. Think about this. When Adam sinned, the entire race of humanity is cursed with condemnation. That means everybody from the moment they're conceived deserves to go to hell. There's no exceptions. No one's born innocent. They're vipers in diapers. Left to themselves, they will grow up and rebel. I know they're precious and beautiful, but they've been infested with sin. All of us have. And so the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And when God says you're going to die, he's not just talking about expiring and going, hold me closer, Red, I just got shot. And then you stop to exist. Death in the Bible is an ongoing experience of banishment, a cursed separation from Christ. The Bible says that men will spend day and night forever in the lake of fire, away from the presence of the Lord. That's the severity and consequences of sin. That shows us how, how highly God values his holiness and how disastrous this great event was. And some people read this and they go, I don't like it. I don't want what somebody else did to count for me. And unfortunately, God didn't take a survey and say, are you okay with that? But secondly, remember this, don't ever say, I don't want what somebody else did to count for me, or you just excluded yourself from the cross of Christ. Because thank God there's a glimmer of hope here. What Adam did counted for you and me, and I deserve hell, and babies deserve hell. Now God may by his grace apply the blood of Christ and pardon those who die before they're old enough to respond, but the whole world is cursed and condemned, and we've inherited Adam's corruption. That means we're sinners and all we like sheep will go astray. Some become self-righteous and religious and do it their way and they're still going to go to hell. Others become wild and they wander from God and they're on their way to hell. The only solution is through Christ. But in verses 20 through 24, we, we end this chapter with a ray of hope and an and, and evidence of God's great compassion and grace. And I think Adam picked up on it immediately. He just heard some heavy news. Death, death death, right? As though all hope was lost. But because of the promise that the seed will come and crush the head of Satan, he had hope. And so beginning in verse 20, we see the compassion of God. It says, now the man called his wife's name Eve. This is the Greek word Hava. A friend of mine, he named his daughter Hava. And Hava means living. He named her living because she was the mother of all the living. They already began to have a hope that somehow God would solve this sin problem. Later on, when they had Noah, they said, now someone will comfort us. They, 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 they pronounced that there will still be life, that somehow God gives us a ray of hope in the midst of darkness. And so he names his wife Eve. But then look at the compassion of God. He doesn't simply say, now be gone from me. But instead, he says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. 
Where in the world did he get garments of skin? Do you think he just went to the garments of skin rack? It appears then that he slaughtered an animal. And maybe in their sight, they watched this gory shedding of blood and skinning of an animal that they might understand right from the beginning that God's way back to him is through the shedding of blood and death of an innocent substitute. And this idea of God providing the clothing that makes you suitable to be in his presence will be a theme that's picked up in scripture. The Bible says all our righteousness is filthy rags. But Isaiah says, but the Lord God clothed me with a robe of righteousness. In the book of Zechariah, Zechariah is standing for the Lord and he's covered with excrement. And God says, take off those filthy robes and put on him a festal robe. And so this idea that God in his mercy provides us the appropriate attire to cover over our sin and make us acceptable is a theme that's demonstrated at the cross because God put on Jesus the filth of my sin so that when I flee to Jesus, he clothes me with his righteousness. And so Paul said in Philippians 3, one day I want to be found before God, not having my own righteousness, but I want to have the righteousness which comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation, the author's going to pick up this theme of nakedness and shame So Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, I advise you to buy from me gold so that you can be rich and white garments so that you clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And how sad it is to think, how many people are gonna die? And they think they're all right and they think they're gonna come before God and say, I'm in, right? I'm a good person. And suddenly the books will be opened and the shame of their sin and nakedness will be exposed and they'll be banished forever to the lake of fire. But yet... God has already told us, if you come to Jesus, he'll wash you, he'll clothe you. In Revelation 22, it says, blessed are those who have washed their robes because now they have the right to the tree of life and they may enter into the gates of the city. And so God clothes him. And then in verse 22 through 24, look with me. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, unless he stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever in this doomed condition. God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. No more to be able to see God. Now he would have to call upon him by faith. He drove him out. And at the east of the garden, he stationed cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. But you know what's beautiful about that? God guards the way to the tree of life, but he hasn't locked it down. He has provided a way to the tree of life. And that's through Christ. And men try to beat their way to the tree of life through their religion. But Jesus says, no one comes to God but through me. The Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's Christ. And I want to encourage you that this verse does not provide us with no hope. It reminds us that Jesus is the only way to God. Not religion, not goodness, not reforming, but repentance and faith in Jesus alone. He's the way that brings us to God. Thank God he was sent to a place of toil, but not torment. So in closing, I want you to just take a few things with you. Number one, those of us who have been saved by the grace of God realize that it's a struggle. Satan is always on the lookout. He's always prowling about, tempting us, discouraging us, putting 
thoughts in our mind and putting opposition in our way. And that's how life works. And so I, I, I'm reminded from this very passage to take courage. Don't lash out at Satan and go, Satan, I'm going to beat you up. So the Bible says not even the archangel Michael rebukes Satan. But I want to give you an encouraging thought. Originally, God said in Genesis 3, under the feet of Jesus, he will crush you. But now in Romans 16, 20, this is what Paul says to all of us who are Christians. He says in verse 20, the God of peace, and he tells all of us, this is to you, the God of peace shall soon crush Satan under your feet. And so our time will come when we will participate with Christ in the final destruction of Satan. The devil who deceived them, the Bible says, is thrown in the lake of fire and he'll be tormented day and night forever. But in the meantime, we're told, be sober, be watchful. Satan's prowling about. The Bible says, submit to God. It's worth it. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. Don't give up. Take up the armor of God. Don't take the easy way out. Don't turn and just throw it all away and follow Satan. He always offers these comforts, but he never wants us to think about the consequences. So take courage that his doom is sure. Secondly, remember that our life is not about ease and comfort. I read this passage and I go, why do I not always want to get up? Because life is hard. And Jesus was a man of sorrows. And so as you think about your schooling or your work or or staying home and changing diapers, or whatever you're doing, this is something that we can do for the Lord. God's renewing us in Christ. He's not going to remove the thorns, but I can say, Lord, my work, I can do it unto you now. And third, just be reminded that marriage is a beautiful gift, but the entrance of sin means it's hard, and there's going to be conflict, and so many of you are in conflict right now, and you're like, what did I get myself into? Well, We've all entered into a contract of two sinners when we're married. And so don't give up the hope that God and his grace is working in all of us and pray for our marriages. Get hold of this book by Keller and begin to talk and ask prayer and, and allow the Lord to work in your life regardless of what your partner's doing. Fourth, real quick, remember there's going to be a struggle between sin and Satan. And there's going to be a struggle between God's people and and Satan's people. And so, yeah, some of your relatives are going to not understand. You're too religious. Some of your friends will make fun of you if you choose to say, no, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm not going to do that. But God said that would happen. And then, remember the futility of hiding our sin. There's just something about sin that says, hide, don't tell, cover it up. Proverbs 28, 13 says this. He that covers his sins will never prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. So this morning, perhaps God's speaking to you and you're like, you know, I didn't want anybody to know that I lied. I'm, I'm, I'm so ashamed that I did this. But the solution is not to hide from God. It's to realize that when you come to the light, there's great mercy with Christ. The Bible says, let the wicked forsake his way. Let him return to the Lord and he'll have mercy on you. So if you're under the weight and guilt of sin and, you're, and, and you don't want anybody to know about it, <clears throat> come to Christ. He's so tender and caring. He says to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And let's praise God for the hope of this passage that Jesus paid it all. 
Matthew Henry said something really cool. He said this. He said, sin brought sorrow, a curse, thorns and thistles. Christ became a man of sorrows. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse because he became a curse. Christ was a man of sorrows. Adam sweat. Christ sweat drops of blood. Adam has to toil with the thorns. Christ wore a crown of thorns for us. And when he shed his blood, he conquered sin and Satan. Adam was doomed to die, and scripture says he became obedient to death that we might have life. And so I close by inviting you to join me at the cross where we find the hope of Jesus. Let's bow together and pray. Father, thank you for this passage and thank you so much that in the midst of the consequences of sin, we see your kindness. Thank you that Jesus came and defeated Satan on the cross and paid for our sins. He's the Lamb of God who took away our sins. And so we come to him this morning and we thank you so much that he gives us hope and forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, that because we are forgiven sinners, that you sought us out, that we'll go back to this world and love those who are still in darkness, that we'll understand that when they get angry at us, it's because there's enmity between Satan's seed and the seed of Christ. And that we will be willing to endure and resist Satan, Lord. It's difficult. Help us to do everything without complaining. Help those who are struggling in their marriage, Lord, to seek your face, to trust in your grace. And if you're here this morning and you haven't come to Christ, come out of the trees now, right now, just come to Jesus and tell him, Lord, I get it. I can't save myself. Would you forgive me and and wash me and change my heart and I will become a follower of Christ. Ask God to make you one of his seed, one of Christ's followers. Thank you, Lord, for your word and how it bears fruit. And so I pray that you will bless your word and strengthen us as we go forth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Because of the grace of God that we see there, we want to respond by singing about the grace of God. But we're going to do something this morning. I'll only do this once in a while. The Bible seems to always say, when you're going to follow the Lord, you make that public. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him. So scripture says, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. Believe in your heart and you shall be saved. There's this coming out where you say, I've become a Christ follower. So from time to time, I'll hear of people that are making decisions, but we want to provide them an opportunity to make that public. So while we're singing Amazing Grace, I want to invite anybody here who's made a decision to follow Christ. If you're a believer, you believe that he died for you and and he saved you, to come and stand with me so we can pray for you. Uh, This morning we had two or three people come just to say, I want to identify myself with Christ. If you don't come, it doesn't mean you're not saved. This doesn't save you by coming forward. But there's something about just saying, you know what? I want people to know that I've been saved by God's grace. I want people to know publicly that I'm a Christ follower. So as we're singing, I want to invite you to just come and stand with me and then someone will come and pray with you after the service and we'll rejoice with you. So don't be shy. I'm not going to draw it out or try to coerce you. But if you want to publicly say, you know what? I believe. I want, to, I want the world to know that I'm a Christ follower. You come and stand with me as we sing. Let's stand together. We're going to sing Amazing Grace.
Don't be shy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but for coming this morning. I want you to bow with me in prayer. If you didn't come this morning, but you wanted to, it's not any, any terrible thing. Just talk to one of us. We want to help you come to the Lord and make sure you're a believer. Father, thank you so much for everyone that came today. Thank you for the power of the word of God. Thank you that you're seeking those who are lost. Thank you that you loved us, Lord, and you found us in our shame, and we're still in recovery. But thank you that the blood of Jesus gives us hope that we don't have to hide from you. And Lord, I pray that each person will leave encouraged today, not running from you, but running to you. Thank you that the Savior is here to meet us in all of our sorrows. So Lord, we pray for your power and your grace to continue to extend to this hurting world. Send us out, each one of us, as missionaries this week. And Lord, we look forward to many who will come back tonight for our newcomer's dinner. May you just move those whom you're touching to become part of this fellowship and join us in this great work of advancing the gospel. We thank you for our families and we thank you that we can celebrate and love one another until Jesus comes back. For it's in his name we pray, amen. amen. God bless you, have a great week. How are you, brother? How you doing? I don't want to talk into my mic here. I'm doing good. Okay. Turn it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>